Well, all right. Uh, welcome to, I guess, another episode of On the Shoulders of Giants. Um, so today, we will be talking about Christology, the doctrine of Christ, who is Jesus. Um, we're going to look at the on, the ontological nature of Jesus, who, who is he as a being, uh, as, as God and man. We'll look at it from scripture. We're going to look at it from history. Um, we're going to look at what Christ did and then we're going to look at some heresies and then I'll, if, at the end of it, if we have enough time, uh, remaining, I'll try and hit about 30 or so minutes. But if we have time, we're going to talk about, uh, if Jesus could have sinned. Um, so but yeah, let's get right into it. Um, so Christology is, is such an important it's such an important um, doctrine within Scripture, right? It, you, I mean, you've got you've got eschatology, soteriology, the end time, salvation. You've got all these different things, but without Christ, it's hard to have a doctrine of salvation. How are we saved? If if what's what's our atonement? How are, how are our sins paid for? And and how do we how do we understand that biblically and same with eschatology who's gonna come back well it's christ and so what we'll look at is is and and even what i'll say right now understanding who jesus is is the most important thing to do in scripture and one thing we have to recognize one thing we have to consider is think about the, the the like a bicycle wheel You've got like the wheel, the the wheel and the tire attached to it with all the the spokes going out. The spokes go out from a center middle point, and so you could argue that that middle point is the Trinity, but but within that, you've got the ball bearings that make up that, and that's that's Christology, and so it's so 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 important. If you miss Christology, if you get Christology wrong, if you get the doctrine of Christ wrong, you have messed up every other point of doctrine it affects everything else and so we i would love to i mean do a 12 part series on this um but we're gonna cram it into 30 minutes and so it'll be fun but uh and i'll give you all resources if you'd like to to read more on the doctrine of christ because there's 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 a lot out there on who who jesus is but first i want to start with a little bit of crash course christology um, and kind of give you all a little bit of a picture of, of, of the importance of it. And so the first thing I'll say is that we must do our Christology from above. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, by doing Christology from above, we say, okay, we have to look at scripture and we have to look at what the Bible says. And we say, okay, what does the Bible say about who Jesus is? Not who is this historical Jesus? There is a big push for that uh, decades ago, maybe longer than that. I should fact check that before I just start talking like that. Um, but there was this push for who is the historical Jesus and, and, and how do we relate to that? How do we relate that to scripture? Well, we're going to kind of do the opposite. And I think we'll do the opposite. Uh, and we should do the opposite, which is what does the Bible say? And then how does that connect with the historical Jesus, with who he is, what he's done and all that? And so, uh, in his, in his book, 
um, the person of Christ and introduction, Steve Wellham, who I, who I highly recommend. Um, he, uh, he says on page 25 of this book, he says, if scripture is not the necessary and sufficient condition to warrant our Christological conclusions, then ultimately we will not be able to say anything objectively true and theological about Christ's identity. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, what he's saying is we have to go look at what the Bible says. We have to look at what does scripture say, and, and we have to rest on the authority of scripture. And so he says that. He says, if if the Bible is not the, the sufficient means, the sufficient condition to understand and to uh, prove our conclusions about who Jesus is, then we can't say anything true and theological about who Jesus is. We have to go to what does the Bible say? And so that's kind of what what we're going to do. And so we're going to look at a couple texts and we'll look at all these different things um, and I'll kind of walk through some, but we must look at scripture to determine who Jesus is. That means interpreting scripture on its own terms and utilizing the categories and the structure of the Bible to drive how we interpret it as a whole. And so Paul lays this out um, in Acts 17, um, and we'll get there in a little bit, but there's such an importance of, of interpreting scripture Christologically. I mean, obviously in the 21st century, we have the full and complete canon of scripture. We have all that God has revealed to us. And we'll, we'll talk about the doctrine of scripture in another episode um, later on down the road. But we have the full canon of scripture, so we can, and we know as, as Christians, we know what's kind of going on holistically. When somebody asks, what does the Old Testament point to? Our response oftentimes is, oh, it points to Christ. Well, if you're living in the Old Testament, you don't know that. You know, so, so how, do you read, how, you, how you read the Bible, especially how you read the Old Testament, we need to go back and understand how would the people in the Old Testament have read the Old Testament? How would guys like, like Paul have read the Pentateuch? How would guys, even going back further than that, how would guys like David or Solomon or even, even Jesus's earthly father, Joseph, how would they have read the Old Testament? Well, they would have looked at the Old Testament and said, okay, we know Genesis 3.15, there's a coming Messiah or somebody who's going to come. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. He'll have his heel bruised, all that. And so they're awaiting this deliverer. And so, and we can talk about the Pentateuch and all that later on. Um, but, and we'll, we'll focus on that, but we have to interpret scripture and interpret the Old Testament as, as these men and women and people in the Old Testament, these Israelites are saying, there is a coming Messiah. There's some, some figure coming who will deliver us and, and take us back to the goal of creation. Well, what was the goal of, of creation? It's that, that all people who are, who are in, who are all who are in Christ, God's people, will dwell in a place enjoying his presence. Um, thank you, Jonathan Atkinson, Dr. Jonathan Atkinson, for uh, helping me out to understand that. Um, go take his class if you're at Texas Baptist College in Old Testament. Uh, if you're not at TBC, then go there. But that's a different thing. 
but we have to understand scripture in in that light of of there is a goal of creation there's this rest the writer of hebrews talks about it in hebrews 4 there's this rest that is coming in the future and we need to as as christians and as people who who are who who have faith we need to look at that and to say there is a coming messiah there is somebody going to come so so that's what the sacrificial system pointed to that's what the exodus pointed to that's what king david pointed to that's what Elijah pointed to, that's who Melchizedek pointed to. There are all these guys, all these events that are types of Christ, types of him who is to come. And so when when you have Jesus, when you read John 1, you have the uh, John the Baptist saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's saying, in other words, here's, here's Christ. Here's this deliverer that's going to come. And even when you open up to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, you see this beginning of this, this Matthew 1, 1 through 17, this genealogy. Well, it pointing it, it says, here's all the people you need to know. Here's all the Davidic line. And what he's, what Matthew's doing is he's saying, look, we're about to look at the fulfillment of it. And here's his life laid out. Right. And so that's kind of, we need to interpret scripture on its own terms. And we need to, to say, how do we, how do we navigate a, a biblical, Christological, Christocentric understanding of, of humanity. And so I want to look, if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 17. If you don't have your Bible and you're like driving or something, sick. <clears throat> but Acts chapter 17, the, the, Paul lays this out. Um, he interprets scripture. He goes back and he looks at everything and he starts off with certain, certain key factors and certain key points and says, here's how we're going to navigate, navigate all this. So Acts chapter 17 verses 16 through 32. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a, a preacher of divine of, of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so here's where we get our, our framework for, for how we ought to do Christology. Verse 24, Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not that far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being, or we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by by the art or and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard this, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear uh, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so what we have to do, what Paul does right here, is, is he first lays a foundation for a biblical worldview, right? And, and then he explains Christ on those terms. He explains Christ on the Bible's terms. So he explains who the God of creation is, right? He goes back, look at, or if you have your Bible open, you can look at, at verse, uh, where is it? Verse 24, Acts 17, 24. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So he says, here's who the God of creation is, right? He is the God who who created the entire world, so the earth that we live on, and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and Lord of earth, and therefore, he doesn't live in temples made made by man, and he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. And so then he goes on and he explains, so he explains who, who God is, and then he goes from there and he explains who humans are. Right? He says, He made from one man, verse 26, He made from one man, so Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For, in verse 28, in Him we live and move and have our being. So what's Paul doing here? Well, Paul's going back and he's saying, look, look, here's who humans are. So we, we all descended from Adam. We all came from one man, Adam. And, and now we're, we're looking ahead and, and seeing, we're looking ahead from Adam and we're seeing all these people who have come after Adam and all these people who have come later. And we're saying, okay, how are we going to live? And what, what should we do? Well, then he kind of answers that in verse 27 and says, they should seek God, right? They should seek God. And then he says, for he is actually not far from each one of us. And then in verse 28, he, uh, he quotes, I believe it's Job 12, in him we live and move and have our being. I think it's Job 12, 10. Um, in him we live and move and have our being. And so... Paul, Paul lays out this, this 
idea of who humans are. Then he goes on further and he says, uh, and, and uh, at the end of verse 28, he says, for we indeed are his offspring. And he's, he's quoting one of the Greek philosophers. Um, and, and so he's saying here, you know, these things he's telling them, like, you know, what's going on. And then he goes on as he explains who God is, who humans are and the problem of man. And so verse, uh, verse 30 he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he's talking about Christ now. He's saying there's a man and he's looking forward to judge the world. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Christ is going to come back. He's going to judge the world. He's going to wage war on evil. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. Therefore, Matthew 4, 17, Mark 1, 15, you ought to repent. Repent of your sin, forsake your sin, go to Christ, be obedient to Christ. That's, that's kind of the, the idea that Paul is, is going for here. So then he's drawing out this theological framework in verses 30 onward, verses 30 through 32. Uh, and he says, here's Christ. He's, he's drawing out this theological framework based on an interpretation of the problem of man, humanity, and the God of creation. So, so we, have, we have to do the same thing. We can't just say, okay, well, who's this Jesus dude that just kind of came around later on? We have to say, okay, this, we have this character, Jesus. He's existed for all time. John one, he was in the beginning with God. He was, he was God. And, and so we have to say, what, what's kind of the deal here? How are we going to navigate these things? So that leaves, that leaves to give us to a question because Paul doesn't, doesn't uh, provide us with, with the full picture of who Christ is, who Jesus is. He doesn't even mention Jesus by name. Until he uh, until he gets to Corinth um, in chapter eighteen, verse verses five and six, when he's testifying to the Jews, um, or he's in Macedonia. Sorry, he's in in Macedonia, and he's testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus, the Messiah was Jesus, whom you crucified. That's another thing. So now we have in now we have to answer the question. Okay, well, who is Jesus? And this is a a crucial question in Christology. This is a crucial question that we need to understand and something that if you haven't wrestled with, I challenge you wrestle with this. Who is Jesus? Not just, not just, oh, he's God. Well, yes, but, but what does that mean? What does it mean that he is fully God and fully man? Who, what is the deity of Christ? Why was it important that Jesus was God? Why is it so important that if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you are not a true Christian. You're not truly saved. We have, to, we have to sit back and say that. And we have to say people like uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Roman Catholics, if they don't hold to a, a, a biblical Christology, they're not part of the people of God. And that's an important thing to understand. That's a very, very important thing to say. And so we're going to go through at the end of this episode, hopefully, and look at some heresies within Christology. But I want to look at the the deity of Christ. And we're gonna look at this this God man. We have this this character who's truly God and truly man, vera homo, vera deus, as R. C. Sproul said, quoting Latin, 
truly God, truly man. And so we have, first of all, we have in, uh, in, in John 10 30, he says, I and the father are one. That's Jesus who's saying that Jesus is saying, I and the father are one. Well, what does that mean? They're, they're not one in, they're obviously, they're not one in, in, yes, they're one in unity, but they're not one in person. They're not the same person. And we'll get into that later, but they're the same nature, the essence. It's the, it's the same nature, God or the father and Jesus. They're the same nature. We'll get into that in, in a little bit, but I'd also want to turn Colossians 1, uh, Colossians 1, 19, and then verses, and then chapter 2, verse 9. Colossians 1, 19, I'll start in, yeah, I'll start in 1, 19. For in him that is in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Right, so the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Okay, and then in chapter two, verse nine, it, Paul repeats that, and this is Colossians chapter two, verse nine: For in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay, so now we have this view, this picture that the fullness of God, ontologically, the nature, the full nature of who God is, is now dwelling. In, in Jesus. And we even see this laid out even clearer in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11. He says, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, by and becoming and becoming and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have this this picture that that Jesus takes on human flesh. He doesn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He is, he is still equal with God, but he's saying, I'm not going to say, I need to keep this up here, but he takes the form of a servant. He emptied himself and was born in the likeness of men. And then we have this in John 1, 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God, right? And then we have in verse 14, this word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have to, to, to realize that and to say that. And so we have these passages and there's, there's various more texts in the New Testament that we could go to. What about the Old Testament, right? What about the Old Testament? We've got so many passages. We'll probably just stick with, um, with Isaiah for now. Um, but Isaiah has, has several passages that, that we can go to. But I want to go to first to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore, then the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And he's going back and looking at 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant 
where God tells David, I'm going to make you a house, a dynasty, and you're going to, your son is going to eventually reign. Well, then you open up Matthew, you see David, and then da 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 Jesus, right? That's, that's kind of where we are right now. Then you've got all the, the four, the four servant songs, um, in, in Isaiah, Isaiah 42, um, Isaiah, I believe it's, uh, 49, Isaiah 52, um, and, and 53. Um, and we ha- we see this, this picture of, of the coming Christ and Isaiah 53 is definitely the most famous one. Um, but they're all very, very important to understand. Isaiah 53 specifically is the account of the crucifixion like 900 years before, before that, before the crucifixion. So, okay, well, we've looked at, we've looked at scripture a little bit and there, there are, there are dozens more texts. I mean, you could go, Jesus says in Luke 24, he says, you could go, he's when, when, uh, when, when, uh, was it, was it Caiaphas or maybe it's Cephas? I can't remember. Two guys on the road walking in, walking in uh, Luke 24 and Jesus appears to them and conceals himself so that they don't know who he is. And, and then he begins to show them himself in all the scriptures. Well, he's talking about the Old Testament. Jesus is walking through the Old Testament saying, here's how all of this points to me. And so that's what we, that's what we need to look at. That's what we need to say is, is okay, even in, just in the Old Testament, there's so much in there that we could say about, about Christ. Okay, well, what about, what about throughout church history? There, there are several doctrines, or not doctrines, documents that have been made throughout church history that point forward to who, or that, that explain who Jesus is. And this was a big debate for like the first 450 some odd years of church history was who is Jesus? I mean, think about that. We, we, we think, oh yeah, Jesus is God. Boom. End of, end of story. Right. But these, these early church fathers used 450 years to figure out who Jesus was. And a lot of them got it wrong as we'll look at in, the, in, in a little bit. And, I'll, and, but we ended up with two very, very famous uh, a creeds, which are belief statements that I'm going to read in just a mo- in just a moment. But we have two two creeds. One is Nicaea, Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., and this says Council of Nicaea, and, it, and here's the section on on Christology. And in this is so this is saying we believe we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by excuse me, by whom all things were made. What a loaded sentence that is. So we, this is saying we believe, Christians, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten Son of God. He is the only Son of God. He didn't Jesus God the Father didn't have other children. It was only the son and he's begotten of the father before all worlds. Well, this is referring to his eternality. So he's not made, he's not created. He has eternally existed with the father. He is God of God. He is God, right? He is light of light. First John one, five, uh, uh, God is light and in him, there is no darkness at all. So if he, if Jesus is light of light, we know, okay, Jesus is God. He's begotten. He's very God of very God. He's begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. This is the word homoousios, not homoousios. Homoousios is the same 
substance. It's the, it's the word that that Nicaea and Chalcedon was like all about was it is, it is the same substance as the Father. All that is is in the Father is in Christ, and and that's what we're trying to understand here. And so, then we have the second half of that of the Nicene Creed, and this is more of of the work of Christ, who for us men for our salvation came down from heaven. And was incarnate by the Holy Spirit, took on flesh by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day rose again, according to the scriptures, ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. That's, that's what Christ is going to do. That's what Christ has done. That's who Jesus is. If you deny that statement... If you say, no, 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 that's wrong, that's a big deal. That's a very, very big deal. That's, that's denying the deity of Christ, essentially. Well, then fast forward about 126 years, you've got Chalcedon. And, and Chalcedon, the Council of, Council of Chalcedon was a huge thing. And, and even looking at Chalcedonian Christology, which, which Stephen Wellen talks about in his book, God the Son Incarnate, as well as in his book, um, The Person of Christ, and then you can find it all over the place. It's a big deal. But, but, and we'll get into some heresies right after this. But we have Chalcedon. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, so following the church, the church fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. At once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man subsisting or sorry consisting also of a reasonable soul and body so that's against apollinarianism which denied the full humanity and perfection of the son he's of one substance homoousios he's of one substance with the father as regards to his godhead so in his divinity he is equal with god yet yet at the same time of one substance homoousion with us as regards to his manhood he is like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages. So he's eternal, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood begotten for us men and our salvation. Of the Virgin Mary, the God-bearer Theotokos, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. And the distinction of two natures being in no way annulled by the union. So this is against uh, Eutychianism. I can't even say that. I can say the other one, though. Monophysitism. Um, but rather, the characteristics of, of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, so that's against Nestorianism, but one and the same Son, only begotten, Word, God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ taught himself, taught us, and the creed of the fathers, the beliefs of the fathers, handed down to us. So that's a lot of words. A lot of big words and Latin words and Greek words, and I'm sorry, and I wish we had time. Maybe I'll go back over this later on in another episode, but but I gotta we got to to finish this right now. But 
we, we have all these different things. And I mentioned all these different isms. One of them I couldn't even pronounce. Eutychianism? We're going to go with that. Eutychianism. That's probably wrong. Um, but monophysitism was the... So I'll start, with, I'll start with Apollinarianism. And this is kind of what Chalcedon was fighting against. Chalcedon was pretty much fighting against all these heresies. All these, these wrong beliefs, these wrong doctrines about who Jesus is. And so we, we say, okay, there's one that wasn't really mentioned, but it's, or actually it was mentioned, but where is it? Uh, it was mentioned in Nicaea, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the father by whom all things were made. So that was against Arianism. That Arianism taught that the son was a created being. He was not divine. He was just a person, but he was not divine. Well, that's wrong because that, that denies his divinity, right? We say that God is truly God, truly man. He is completely God, completely man. And, and so we have to say, okay, well, well, is Jesus fully God? The answer is yes. It's a resounding yes, right? John 1, 1, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Logos was God. That's what we need to say is, is, the Logos the, was God. He has existed eternally with God. He was in the beginning with God, right? I mean, that's John 1. John is very explicit about that. He's very clear about that. And then Jehovah's Witnesses get it wrong. Their translation says the word was a God. That's wrong. Jesus was fully God. He was, he was not created. He has eternally existed with the Father. Well, then later on, you have Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism denied the full humanity and perfection of the son. It said Jesus wasn't perfect and he wasn't fully human. It was, it was this really weird thing. And so he was truly God and truly man consisting also of a reasonable soul and body. So he's fully human and he's still perfect because he's of one substance, homo usias co-substantial, co-essential with the father as regards to his Godhead. Then we have monophysitism. Christ only has, has one divine nature and therefore one will. Well, that's wrong. He has two natures, right? He, he, and, and, and this is laid out in uh, the, the Chalcedonian definition. One in the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures. He has a human nature and a divine nature. The opposite of monophysitism. It's, it's diet. Was it diothelitism or diophysitism? Something like that. But, but we have this, this opposite of, of monophysitism. Christ had two natures. He had a human nature, but consisting of body and soul. And he had a divine nature because he was of the same substance, homo usios, with the father. And so we have to, we have to reconcile those things and how those things blend together is a mystery. And scripture is clear on that. There's not like a, an exact path that we can trace to follow how those two natures work together. We just have to accept it. And we can get into that later on. And I can explain more of that in a different episode. Um, Cause this is a very, very important, important subject. So, those are, those are some heresies. Those are some, some history as to what, what's going on. Um, but there's one more heresy 
uh, at the end called Nestorianism. Nestorianism was two persons in one nature. And the Chalcedonian definition says not as parted or separated into two persons, but one in the same son and only begotten God, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as the prophets from earlier times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the fathers was handed down as, as handed down to us. And so Nestorianism taught that there were two persons in one nature. Well, and I want to get into this one because there's, there's, a, there's, a there's a big debate kind of going on right now. And it's this whole, this whole thing. Um, but but I, I think it's wrong. Um, and well, it, it kind of stems back earlier to a debate. In like 2016, there was a big debate on um, the eternal eternal functional subordination or EFS of the son has Christ eternally submitted to the will of the father or did he only submit to the will of the father during his incarnation? That's another episode we can do, um, later on and we'll figure that out in a, in a future time. Um, but you have these two persons and these two persons in Nestorianism, these two persons are in this one nature and, and the opposite is true. It's two natures in one person because you have, you have this, this divine nature, this God, this Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, who assumes to himself, he takes on, he adds to himself humanity. He adds to himself a human nature. He doesn't lose his divine nature. He is still fully God and fully human. That's, that's what we need to understand. And so we have to look at we have to look at that. And we have to say, man, that that's got to be, that's the truth. That's what the church has historically taught. That's what the church has historically believed. Um, is that, the, is that there were two persons in one nature. And so we have to say, when we're saying who is Jesus to sum everything up that we've just talked about so far to say, who is Jesus? We have to say that he's truly God and truly man. He is, he is God in his, in his nature and he is human in his nature. He is both. He has two natures and he has two wills. So when we, when we read the Old Testament, we see that there's this, this prophet who's going to come. We see that there's this priest, this high priest, this great high priest who's going to come. We see that there's this king who's going to come. Well, Christ fulfills all of those offices of prophet, priest, and king. Christ fulfills, fulfills, fulfills the offices of prophet, priest, and king. He fulfills the office of prophet because he reveals truth. He reveals to, to us truth about himself, about scripture, about the world, everything like that. And, and then he reveals to us his, his priesthood by, by explaining to us and showing us that he's bringing these two estranged parties together, God and man. We see his kingship in 2 Samuel 7, uh, or referring back to 2 Samuel 7, where, where, and I mentioned this earlier, where God tells David, I'm going to make you a king, or I'm going to make you a house in this dynasty, and you're going to, your son will reign forever and ever. Well, that's, that's happening in the future. But Christ fulfilled his kingship, because he's now ruling at the right hand of God. So, 
we don't have time to get into could Jesus Jesus have sinned? Um, actually, yeah, we do. I've got a little bit. We're gonna do very very quickly. Could Jesus have sinned? Uh, the answer the answer very quickly is is no. Um, yes, Jesus was tempted in every in every uh, aspect in every way, just as we are. Yes, his temptations were real. But at the same time, James 1.13, God cannot, God cannot sin. Um, he's unable to sin. And so because of that, yes, he was fully human, but his, his, his divine, because of his divine nature, he wasn't able to, to sin. And so we have to think about it. We have to think about it. Uh, in, in Trinitarian, in, in Trinitarian terms, and so, um, basically, I'm going to read this, this uh, quote from Steve Wellham's book, the, uh, or, uh, God the Son Incarnate. This is page 460 on this subject. And he argues for the impeccability position. So I'll read this to you real quick. Our answer is that the impeccability, the, the God, so Jesus is unable to sin, the impeccability position is best. Why? Let us first state the theological rationale for it, working within the parameters of classical Christology and then offer a brief defense of it. Theologically speaking, if we view our Lord as merely the man Jesus Christ, even though his human nature was unfallen and sinless, he would nevertheless, like the first Adam, be able to sin. So even if it was just his humanity, even if we look at just his humanity, we have to say, Okay, well, then he would be just like the first Adam. He'd be able to sin. He'd be able to mess everything up. Well, that's not the case. So because he's not able to sin, we have to, we have to look at Jesus' unfallen nature, say that he was able to sin. But there's more to the identity of Christ than, than just this. Especially when we think of, of who, especially when we think of the who of the incarnation. And this is well Jesus is not merely another Adam or even a greater spirit-empowered one. He is the last Adam, the head of the new creation, the divine son incarnate. And as the son, it is impossible for him to sin and to yield to temptation because God cannot sin. Behind this assertion is the fact that sin is an act of the person, not of the nature. And that in the case of Christ, he is the eternal son. And then he quotes uh, MacLeod. And he says, if he, if Jesus sinned, God sinned. And at this level, the impeccability of Christ is absolute. It rests not upon his unique endowment with the Holy Spirit, nor upon the indefectibility of God's redemptive purposes, but the fact that he is who he is. So at the end of the day, we have to say, man, God, God cannot sin. And, and because Jesus is God, he would be unable to sin. Um, I hope that all makes sense. That was kind of a lot to cram into what I thought was going to be 30 minutes. And now we're sitting about 44. Um, but I hope that was helpful. We'll probably brush up on some more of this. Um, if you have questions, please shoot us a DM on Instagram. Um, we'd love to, to answer those and help you out as much as we can. Um, but in a, all in all, we have to understand who Christ is. Um, it's so, so, so important. 
if we get Christology wrong, we get all other aspects of theology wrong. Um, so this certainly won't be the last episode on Christology. We'll certainly get another one going um, soon. But just wanted to, to touch on this for a little bit. And uh, we will go from there. So let's close with, uh, with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for this time that we get to study um, scripture, to study theology, to study who you are. Um, I pray that we would understand who you are, that you would give us minds to understand and eyes to, to see you in the scriptures, that we would be like the Berean Jews, that we would search the scriptures to see if these things were so. I thank you for um, all of you have given to us. We pray all these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.